I met Thomas Barnett around 1993, when he was the singer for the band Inquisition. As a young punk here in Richmond, Inquisition showed a path for me and my friends that was both inspiring and empowering, both in the content and in their operation. Thomas had a clear love for both people and punk rock, and it came through so clearly. At any show, you could find him talking with folks in the crowd, regardless of if he was there to play. And over the years, he's managed to keep those loves kindled and apply them to new bands, Strike Anywhere, Great Collapse, as well as to new generations of punk rock. This interview doesn't take the normal form of a various things interview. Usually it is me highlighting someone else. But with Thomas, in his own way, he wanted to talk about me too, which in itself just goes to show what kind of person Thomas really is. I think to him, music, punk rock, is a dialogue, just like any community should be. We talked for a bit, so there are a couple interludes, but it was an amazing conversation, covering everything from the way we approach music, to Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, Antifa, and the hope and optimism we have for both human beings and punk rock. So without further words, my conversation with Thomas Barnett. Enjoy. It's nice to, to hear your voice, man. It's awesome. How is <laughs> your pandemic life going? How's the past year been? Oh. Shit, it's been, oh God, all up and down, man, all up and down. I got like divorced in like <laughs> 2019 and I might, I'd gotten to like diagnosed with like a, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, autoimmune disorder, which is good because I've been having problems for like 10 years or something and I was kind of able to figure it out. Um, but then like, I don't know, like getting divorced and finding that out, like things got really good and just, I don't know. So I've actually been having like a pretty good, uh, <laughs> time since 2019, I guess. <laughs> and, well, look, I'm sorry for all the, all the troubles, but also I'm you just as a, as a witness and a fan, um, I'm watching like all the creative work that you've been involved in during the pandemic is like, it's a beautiful thing to behold because it's more than most people do when there isn't a pandemic. <laughs> like it's awesome. Thanks, man. I mean, you know, and sadly there is a bit of like, um, a little bit of worry of like, it kind of made me focus like, cause the thing is, so my, my autoimmune disorder, um, it causes me if I get like a cold or something like that to go into pneumonia hmm. and I stopped responding to, uh, oral antibiotics, um, like in July of 2019. And so I had to start going like for pick lines and like getting like IV antibiotics and that kind of thing. So <laughs> when the yeah. pandemic kind of popped out, like it was like my, I have a specialist and he was like, look, I, you know, bunker. He was just like, fuck, he was, he was so doom and gloom. It was so actually kind of cool when, when, when the thing actually hit, because everyone else was just kind of like underestimating it, you know, and it was actually kind of refreshing to hear someone being like, I don't fucking know from a medical person. Like, I guess they really shouldn't do that maybe. But, um, then over time, <laughs> no, it, like, Oh, go ahead. No, it's just, I, I totally understand. It's, it, it sounds like counterintuitive at first, but you want someone to be on that journey with you when there's things to be distressed about things to take seriously, things to, to, to admit that, maybe we don't know everything we should know. Like, I, I guess it, it might've felt in some way, even weirdly more empowering for you to have a physician who was more like by your side, being honest about what they knew and what they didn't than someone who was maybe trying to paper over it. Yeah. I mean, 
and, and totally he's someone i've basically been looking for for like 10 years and i mean he calls me on a cell phone like he just like talk like just starts talking to me about other stuff i mean it's great to have that kind of access to like a um a doctor especially these days and they usually just give you like 15 minutes but but in talking to my doc he's like it's so different covid you'll you might actually be it might not actually affect you like wow. the way yeah, because it, it's like he's and he'll use these metaphors. He's like, it's like pneumonia is like uh like the bacteria that causes pneumonia is like a it's like a soldier with like a a sword and a, a shield, and this thing's like a sword but no shield and some other thing. I'm like, okay, I don't understand. But it's like the way that the proteins on it or, or something or and um, okay, so yeah, I mean, interesting. I've, I've been kind of <laughs> just going, and now I'm just trying to get the vaccine, and you know, just trying to go through that. But it's definitely been a crazy time, and it, there's definitely like, like I remember we were coming towards the end of the '92 FU record. It was just like I was like the second one because <laughs> we did two during this damn thing. Um, I, I was just I was feeling really like kind of like fatalist, like, Oh my God, what if this is my last? And it's just one of the stupid things that you get into. Well, I get into, um, just from having health issues for so long. Of like, is this going to be the, like the last thing I do, you know? And with COVID, right. it was just like, fuck. So yeah, I'm just like, while I have it. And that's another thing too, is I just kind of had to learn to like, um, when I do get energy because this autoimmune disorder, when it kicks me down, I'll be, you know, I can be out for like two or three months and it makes like, reliable employment kind of impossible um because right. it can it, right. i can just be out but um yeah so it is always that it's just like me trying to parent and do as much with my kid as i can and then also like get as much of this other shit out as i can too because you just you don't know and yeah i mean it's 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 been cool um i, I feel really bad you know like the pandemic's so weird because i know some people that it is just fucking destroyed their lives you know like live sound guys they can't make you know their rent and, and they're just out of this shit and then you know you talk to some people and they're like fucking doing great it's so crazy like it's so it's like a weird like a reshuffle of of possibility and resources and i mean it's precarious for everybody like you know and it's all that it's, it's kind of the relativity where you know some people are like able just seamlessly like took their laptop home, didn't go back to work and stayed working the next day throughout the pandemic, like, which was, yeah, yeah, which yeah. is ridiculous. Like, and I just, <laughs> I just got this job. Um, so I've been doing like blue collar shit my whole life, like warehouse managing at, you know, record distro or, you know, produce section at Elwood Thompson's every version of that right. in every state I've lived in, you know, <laughs> like, like, or a lot of like landscaping and, you know, large property maintenance, all the stuff that kind of led you tour and have an itinerant life. But when you need to work between music stuff, you can. And anyway, I had all that, like the same Jack and Jill of all trades, that punk kind of, you know, in this particular life tends to cultivate in a person. And then just, just in 17, I got a job like organizing staff attorneys for a, a, a plaintiff side labor, racial discrimination, sexual harassment law firm. Right. So doing these class action cases on be, you know, on, so representing an entire industry of workers, truck drivers, nurses, you know, or going up against big companies, big corporations on behalf of workers who weren't paid legally or were put right. in terrible positions or all of that, you know, and, 
anyway, so all of a sudden I have like a, whatever, a white collar office job and I still have only a GED. Right. And like, I just kind of hustled and like, I guess I showed like kind of passion for the ideal, the idealistic component of the work. Right. You know, like just, and the ability to, because a lot of it is talking to people, making them feel comfortable, making them, you know, allowing them to understand the process and like, Hey, do you want to do a declaration? We could build this case around your complaint and we could get in, you know, what in the, in, in terms of the language of union, it would be an entire industry of folks like to jump on this lawsuit and make, make these fuckers pay for not paying you know, yeah, and, and all the other things. So I got into it from that point of view and then all the rest of the stuff I had to, well, you know, learn like the right, law right. and shit. So now I'm kind of like a specialized paralegal that runs a department that sort of is super specific to labor law, you know, and don't really, ha- didn't have any, educational or other professional background until I just like, they didn't have this um, department before. And I was a file clerk and it was the law firm my wife, who's an attorney, worked for. And they're like, I was just doing the file room between tours, you know, like the hard copies, like old school and like, like right. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like, and then, right. and then it was like, they were like, okay, we want to, they knew me. I was there in the moment. And they were like, can you, what, what do you think about this? We need, we need something I was like, well, what if you guys built a department? And then they were like, cool, you do it. And I was like, oh. oh shit. Anyway, I probably wouldn't have had the opportunity had the pandemic not happened and kept me home, right? Really? And anyway, that's the story. So that's why the ridiculous privilege happened. Otherwise, I would have been, you know, working at a grocery store or a warehouse or, you know, for a friend's metal shop and, you know, or the file room of, the, of this law firm and not been been able to be employed at all during the pandemic but so that's that's what's happening to me this past year um work i mean you know and being there like like how you got that like that counts for so much sometimes like just being like i've gotten so many opportunities where just like you're you get you get pulled into shit that like you could just never even dream of just because like you're there and like you're willing and like you see something they don't like that is a really cool position to be in because it's like I don't know you just make cooler shit happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, so I totally, it's it's definitely it's definitely like the thing that punk and DIY taught taught us. Like you know, like oh, this real? isn't about just like the regular path it doesn't work. So you're not going to do no. that and make that <laughs> pledge to yourself when you're 17 or whatever, and and you're surrounded by this kind of counterculture that pushes and pulls you that challenges you and that can catch you when you fall right i mean like it's punks a lot of things but it's also kind of like this psychological like community that it doesn't let you like rest on your laurels or doesn't allow you to have any illusions about yourself but like it's anyway you you you're, you're you're given the promise of like if you use your courage and use your creativity and you see everything like all the negative space that the straight or mainstream world doesn't see like that's the place where you, you live and where you can make real progress. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's so weird too. Cause like when I interact with people that are, um, that don't see that they'll, or don't have that, they, they, like they'll just be like kind of confused by some of the stuff I'd like, like this summer or, or last year. Okay. So like, like I think January of 2020, I heard that you could talk to the international space station with a ham radio. Okay. And so right. like 
like January 1st, I had one from Amazon. It flew over. I turned the thing on. I heard it transmitting things. I, I did this for my daughter, Madison, because they were really interested in, in the uh, International Space Station. So I was like, whoa, I want to be able to talk to it. So like, I studied online, got my license. Six days later, I was licensed with this thing. A couple months, a couple weeks go by, I realized there's this thing where schools can talk to it. So I talked to one of my contacts at RPS. They agreed to let me try and put together a proposal to NASA with their crew. I've been licensed like a month and a half at this point, put together a proposal Amazing. with RPS to to get like some of their poorest schools to like talk to the International Space Station. We put together this proposal. It doesn't end up going like NASA rejected it because they had like so many other things and it just wasn't up to par what they wanted. But I hit the school back a few months later and I was like, yo, would you want me to teach a class where I teach these kids how to make like antennas and like, just like listen to it and, and I can show them how to transmit and then maybe we can even get them licensed. And they're like, hell yeah. They gave me like a crazy budget, bought all the shit. Then we were supposed to do it virtual. Now I'm waiting until it goes back physical, but that's the thing. If I'm ever coming into a place, it's through the fucking side door. <laughs> and and that's, like, that's right. Right. That's or you're just like, you're just like, they hear a noise. What's that noise? Oh, it's Gary. He's sawing a new door <laughs> through the wall. <laughs> Right. I mean, it blew my mind because I was like looking at the time thing. I mean, it made sense linearly when I was doing it. But then when I looked back, I was like, dude, I went from not knowing anything about ham radio to like I went from that to being able to like go into a classroom. All this shit sitting in an RPS warehouse right now. They they bought a radio for every fucking kid, and they're putting me into the worst middle school in Richmond to do it. And the craziest thing about that meeting was when I went in there, I expected it to be just stupid and whatever there's this white dude who's kind of in charge of whatever this department was and there's these two african-american ladies sitting on both sides of me he started out the meeting going i came into this city my entire life from henrico coming across um whatever part of the, the highway is that cuts through richmond he's like i didn't realize that that highway was put there on purpose to fuck up black neighborhoods. He's like, yeah, so kind yeah. of like right off the gate, I have to accept that everything in my life has come at the expense of people in this city. He's like, so my That's job right. here is to try and find ways that we can kind of undo some of that shit. And like, so, you know, they're, they're start trying to start these two STEM centers. That's kind of where it's going eventually, but they're going to start me out at the worst middle school. And it's like, great. Cause those are the kids that like, are they really expecting to talk to us, like talk off a satellite or talk to the international space station? Not really. And having that skill, it'll put them in something that they can tell amazing to like a ton of people and hopefully like kind of like open their idea of horizons, you know? But even not the like exact, like you know, not the exact details of it, but the like how it expands like everyone's mind to know that they can do that, like the the power of it and the sense of like this world is yours, like you this technology is yours, like you can communicate just like everybody else. You don't have to be Elon Musk. You don't have to go to collegiate. You know, like is the math and science center still still around? Is that would this be something that it feels like a course that could happen there and middle school kids from all over would would come there for for you're talking you about know, the ham radio mechanics still kind of uh, yeah that was so. where because I went to you know Henrico County Public Schools for you know sixteen years and uh, and the math and science center was a big part of like why I stayed. Um, because there were certain programs like, you know, whatever, summer programs or just like concentrations that would happen where you'd get to leave 
you know, right. afternoon, you spend your afternoon out of middle school in that place. And someone, some rad person, some like hippie probably, you know, would, would teach us about like river ecology or see specific stuff, which sounds like, anyway, sounds like your program would be a good fit for that. If that still exists. I think it still does. I mean, I drive by there and I still see the signs for it. Um, I think with them, like they're trying to get like these, like RPS is in this weird position where they have, you know, for many, many years, it was like, we don't have fucking funding. Like they keep passing like all the stupid shit with the Redskins, and they'd be like, yo, we still got, you know, four schools with roofs caving in, you know, <laughs> like, well, now it's like the tables have turned. They've got all this fucking money, but like keeping good teachers there is their problem. And also just mm. coming up with fucking ideas because like they are so empowered right now. Um, like when I was talking to that guy who's like the liaison dude, he was like, I was like, you know, we could also, I know you guys want like stuff to look good for the school system. So, you know, if you guys could like tie this in and get partnerships, like we could put a repeater antenna on like the science museum or do something with VCU. VCU is always trying to make themselves look better, make it work for us. You know, like how can we kind yeah. of like work this in? And, and he, you know, he was just, so I think what we're going to do is like a pilot, like it, it, it's like a community, like I'm a community I forget what they call it, but it's like a, it's almost like a field class or something. It's like 10 classes. I teach these kids and the way I'm doing it, I'm setting it up to make it repeatable by like, I'm going to have other teachers working with me so that they can learn and just take it over. Cause I don't want to fucking do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> I just want to like get it going. Um, and like, hope you want to Johnny Appleseed it. Yeah, you know, because I mean, that's my thing is like, I, I get these ideas and I, and, and, but the opposite reality is like, I have an autoimmune problem. Like, I cannot, like, committing to 10, like, the anxiety that happened on me when they told me they had bought the supplies. I was like, oh shit. <laughs> like, because sometimes, like, my health will just be shit and I won't be able to show up. But I was like, dude, it's 10, you know, worst case scenario. <laughs> like saying I just got one of my normal problems. If I could go, if I had to get hospitalized for antibiotics, I could go to VCU and they'll let me just leave for like up to three hours, I think before they check me out. Um, so I could literally just actually just kind of like, even if I was in that situation, like where I was hospitalized, I could just actually go and teach the class. <laughs> Cause just being around germs puts me at a higher risk, you know? And then the crazy thing right. is like this whole thing, I'm actually healthier right now because everyone's wearing fucking masks and so it's kind right. of like bittersweet um because this is kind of what i'm always like for the past five years this is kind of the situation i've always been in but i'm looked at as being insane but yeah i don't know i'm i'm fucking i'm excited and Whatever. You think that after, like, so, I mean, I'm sure you, we all game this out every day. Like, what's it going to be like in five months? What's going to be like in mm -hmm. six months? Like, you know, and, and nothing's going to be normal again. Like the, what we've discovered about ourselves has been mm -hmm. both, or what the illusions, I would say the crust that's been peeled away from our eyes about the conditions of our society, like what people think, and also the the, the altruism, the sacrifice, the mutual aid, yeah. you know, the like, the sense of immediacy, like you speak about yeah. with your art, everything is different now for fucking ever in a way that, I mean, I know people talk about, there's, there's metaphors like 9-11, people, you know, trot that out. Um, I don't know, like, I mean, surely that was intense and changed consciousness for people, especially people growing up right when that happened. Um, but this is different. I mean, of course, than anything we've ever experienced. And like, also the sense of like, 
here we are, like wealthy nations fucking up, like, you know, like all of those myths about like, you know, what, what we're going to do when we all have to pull together. <laughs> like, you know, this is yeah. a terrible example of like how that sentence doesn't even make sense anymore, you know? And, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like, it would, is it going to, are we going to be in a space where we're a little, for the people that, you know, believe in the shit and are part, are part of the reality of, of this, the biological reality, are we, it, it, wearing a mask is not going to be a weird thing anymore, right? Like it's going to be a little easier to navigate I, this in society, I think. You know, I've, I've read shit like where people were talking about, you know, maybe care, continuing on, and these weren't from, like, groups that would need to specifically, but, you know, because in, in Japan, fucking you do it, you know? Like, like they've been doing that shit for forever. I remember we, I was up at um uh, at Neil Robinson's house, like, back in the 90s, and this band, the Gaia, they were, like, from Japan, and they were playing, um, yeah, yeah. I think CB or somewhere, and... So they were staying with Neil just the weekend I happened to be up there. And I remember, you know, they were wearing the masks and stuff. And I was just like, whoa, that's like for real. Like, it's not just something you see on TV. Like, I've never been in Japan. And it, it, from what I understand, it's kind of like a, it's a social responsibility thing. And generally people do it more when they have a cold. But it's like right. looked at as like really shitty if you have a cold and you don't wear one. And I think that's super yeah. fucking cool. You know, I mean, yeah. just like today, like I was supposed to go to practice and um, my bass player was like, uh, actually, my daughter has um, like we just got this new bass player and he was like, actually, my daughter has a stomach bug. You know, maybe I shouldn't come up. And he's like, I, I figured I'd just kind of tell you all since everyone's it kind of seems to be the norm to just kind of tell people that now. Yeah. And that made yeah. me so happy because it's like, yeah, why wouldn't you? <laughs> like, why would you keep secret that you might be carrying a fucking stomach? Bug? But yeah, like it's finally like we finally captured that that piece of like the social contract. I like sense that we're all part of a biological continuum, right? Like you breathe out, yeah. I breathe in, you know. And that stuff has that's been some of the poetry of like why hardcore and punk physically look like they do shows and the behavior like there is that sense of like inevitable mutual aid contact picking each other up when you fall a stage dive you know and obviously there's tons of ways it's complicated and it it can also just be like a forum for sociopaths and people who like violence and not being accountable um those are the little little storms and whirlwinds that happen at every show still you know but like the arc of it all, like, in my experience has been towards, you know, it, it's not just like all of a sudden we have to learn this difficult thing that we're all connected. We all have to be responsible, take care of each other, be, on, be clear about what's going on in our lives, who's sick, who's not. It's not like that's an – it's more like it helps us to deprogram ourselves to get back to that baseline. Um, anyway, that is more like natural and instinctive to take care of each other. And, and because we take care of each other, we take care of ourselves and that all those equations, right. Those moral equations. Um, anyway, I, I feel like that's another thing, like on the balance, most of the folks that have been involved in punk and hardcore for decades, um, you know, we're, we're slightly more ready for this kind of thing, you know, like as much as anyone can say, you who the fuck was ready for it, but it's, it's something different. It, well, you know, it's. It, I think it's because there isn't that consumer mentality. Like a lot of folks, like when they come into something, they're so used to that. Um, 
like you're buying what is being sold kind of like you don't have a choice in the matter um even the way that americans buy things like we don't barter you know like it, like it's just like here's the price take it and i think when you're dealing with folks from those communities it, there seems to be more um responsibility on kind of both sides of the transaction that like, you know, right. there isn't this demand with like no humanity with it, you know, like that customer is always right kind of thing. Like that doesn't really exist because it's kind of an understanding of like, Oh, you're trying to run a business. Okay. Well, I'm trying to get this thing I want. How can we kind of like mutually make this transaction not suck for each other? Um, and you know, a lot, I think a lot of folks, they kind of take that idea of it just kind of being this one-sided thing and they, they just extend it to everything. So like, you know, why am I going to wear this mask? You know, it's my right to do whatever I want. And they don't understand that. Like, yo, if you don't wear this mask tomorrow, um, the people that are like doing everything around you might be sick. (laughs) You know, like the people who are like picking up your trash, who are selling you things at at the grocery store, who are like making sure the gas station works, who are like making sure your electricity's on, like, all these things that, you know, you kind of take for granted as like this consumer. Right. Like the doctor, the doctors or emergency medical professionals who might save your life or your family. Like it's just a crazy, like it's a crazy, like it's a terrible (laughs) extension of the pathology. In a way, it's almost that unique American pathology. It's a thing that's been cultivated about pioneering and bootstrapping and the whole thing. is just like straight up, you know, a lie that's been supported, you know, exclusively by white privilege and by like how utterly like bankrupt the narrative of the country, the mainstream narrative, the 1776 narrative of the country. Like yeah. all of that stuff is being exposed almost all at once, almost in like an overwhelming volume of, of right. like those illusions. So I think that's why the reaction has been so swift. Like all of these things that these precarious, fragile, wounded ass people like, and, and I mean, we're all like that, you know, we all grew up in this country and like had our pathologies like thrown at us day in, day out. Um, yeah. but anyway, yeah, I, mean, I, I just feel like there's, there's the, the level of reaction. And I mean, this is like, this is like witchcraft style. This is like burning witches or drowning women to see if they'd float. Like this is that level of mass psychosis that, that ripples through our society. Um, you know, all, all the human cultures, like when there's information people can't process when, when some deep seated falsehoods are being threatened, <laughs> like, you know, and like the final door is opening on what we need to do to survive in the future. And, you know, a lot of people aren't ready for that, can't do it. Um, you know, it's sort of a lack of resilience in folks. Um, and we all, we all have that, you know, it's not just like a, it's not like an us and them necessarily situation, but there is, you know, I, I just feel lucky that we've been able to like connect with friends and like all, all of the, the tropes of the pandemic, like have some zoom parties, like socially distance the fuck out of your backyard so you can hang out with people safely you know, all, all of those various things that people do to try and like maintain humanity or have a slight variation in the day. Um, yeah. Has, has been really important. I don't know. Like I noticed the other day, like I drove across the bridge into San Francisco and cause I live in South Berkeley, like near Oakland and it's really not crowded over there. <laughs> like I had not gone there in months and months or even done like just a drive to see something different. And like, or even really driven a car. <laughs> like and I went I went over there and it you could feel the dopamine fasting like 
like just oh my god buildings and look at like all oh, this is a colorful intense world over here oh my god i'm in japantown you know like just uh, walking around driving around like seeing stuff like you know it's just like not taking it helps you sort of like not take the world for granted you know and like how different and amazing and complex everything around you is all the human interactions all the things that you know we built <laughs> all the things that are failing um all the things that are succeeding gary i wanted to ask you a couple of things so first of yeah. all would you mind like your 500 dollars fine is back and you have a bassist yeah yeah and you have 92 fu yeah. And what other project? And would you mind like just quickly like, doing the lightning description or at least what what you think is going on with these projects for you and like what, what it's felt like in recent times to do the music? Well, so five and are fine. Um, you know, when when Patrick passed, me and Matt knew we had to end the band and um when we kinda did. Over the years we tried getting back together but we were just at different spots and I was like trying to make solo music and and Matt was just in a kind of different spot something happened I remember we were talking with um I had a high school reunion come up and I realized oh that that god that'd be nice to connect with those people up but I don't care about any of that um what would be awesome is if we could just have the high school reunion but with like people from like St. Edwards or something play a bunch of music yeah and be around people that meant something to me that I had a real connection with. So I mentioned that to Mike from BCS. He misunderstood me and thought reunion show was what I was saying. Um, and then, so I started planning that. And then he was like, hey, do you guys, well, so you guys are playing too, right? And I was just like, because uh, I had planned it not with my band because Patrick, not with us. We ended up doing that. Matt, I saw it kind of like make a shift in him um, and I realized, okay, this is what we're doing. So we're back together. Um, and then we just got a new bassist. Um, cause Bradley had like three other bands, like Bradley from cloud 13 was playing for us and he had like three other bands. Right. I think it was one of those things where like, dude, <laughs> I can't do anymore. So he helped us with the show. Then 92 FU from that show, Greg from, um, uphill down, a guy who right, actually right. had the first Final Fine recording, uh, working with Mark Miley when we recorded. Um, he's a recording engineer. He'd come up with all these songs for Uphill Down, uh, possibly maybe do a reunion. They ended up not wanting to do it or not liking the song, so he ended up having all these songs. He was like, um, he had got me to sing on this thing, and a friend of his was like, dude, Gary's voice worked good on that. Like, you should maybe try and do something. He's like, well, hey, I've got this Uphill Down record. Like, do you want to, like, just do that and, like, you just make a new thing? And I was like, yeah. And so we tried it. It worked. And yeah, we're so now it's, we're both recording engineers. So like he just makes all the music and then I just write the vocal. but it's like the hardest shit I've ever had to do. Um, because he literally just takes all the stuff for all the other projects he's doing. If it's too hard, um, it becomes a 92 FU song. So it's like a fucking mind fuck when we do this shit. Um, I love it. I love that. That's just so good. Yeah, and he's like, he's crazy. He's like writing in like eleven eight. He'll send me texts, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, dude! <laughs> like he's like, maybe I'll change the beats after I send them to you, after you sang it, and I'm just like, so awesome. <laughs> come on, like you know, it's all like some Greg Ginn level shit. Like he's like, you know, like trying to just like he's on to, like I don't know, man. And it's crazy because like I never request changes. Like whatever he sends me, I'm writing the lyrics for it, and I don't. I don't stand. I, I download it on my phone. Start writing. I don't stop until I'm done. 
Um, and I never listen to the next song. I always complete that song, send it back to them, then listen to the next song um, to start over. And then I've been doing like a bunch of beats and shit and <laughs> like with rappers and stuff. Right, like you worked with Ben Bateman for sure, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I was doing like these inter- instrumental stuff. Like in 2010, I'd kind of like gotten out of, or like 2006, I'd kind of gotten out of like doing my own solo stuff got into making instrumental shit. And um, then all of a sudden one day I was like talking to Ben and he was like, dude, I like that beat. Do you mind if I rap over it? And I was like, dude, here's a bunch of them. You can rap over all of them. And then it turned into doing remixes. And I was sitting at my bus stop for my daughter one time, one day. And this dude came up to me and he was like, uh, are you a rocker? And I was like, I'm a punk rocker. <laughs> and he was like, I'm a rapper. And I was like, Oh, okay. You know, cause I just meet tons of people that are just, from working in the studio and stuff. And, and he was like, no, Google me. And I was like, he's like, a he's like a rapper. He's this guy, Timbo King. He's, um, he was in the Wu Tang uh, affiliate group, um, Royal fam. And then he was in like a group called black market militia. Um, and I don't know, like I, I had this book I had just written and I, he was like, we were talking and he like got a copy of it and, um, he started reading it and he was like, he's like, dude, we got to like, do something together so we started this group called mineral rights um and we've done like two singles we're trying to work on an ep right now but he's between brooklyn and richmond so it's like really hard to, like schedule stuff. wait and you so you met him at a at a bus stop where where was his bus stop it was actually uh just over in forest hill like <laughs> like that's, that's like where with, for some reason that's where i pictured it in my mind it was like yeah. in forest hill yeah, like we were just chill. Like I was waiting for my daughter. He was waiting for his daughter, and, and and he's like one of these dudes that like connections. You have to pay attention to like the way the connection was made. So for us, our whole our whole deal, everything we make is routed around education, and um and knowledge, just because of the way things unfolded over those couple of days. So like whenever we're working on a mineral rights track or something like that, like that's that's what that's kind of like the voice he's looking for, you know, when he works on it, um, which is super cool. I mean, he's a, he's an amazing dude. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what I've been doing. It's cool. It sounds like the, the nature of each project, like you have a really different philosophy and approach and, and kind of give yourself, um, parameters, you know, so it's not, you're not just going to come to 92FU with the same writing mentality as $500 fine, you know, or any, you know, any of the other projects, like you're going to have this distinct approach and this like, well, distinct yeah. way of working on it. Yeah. Like I realized from doing visual art that, um, if you just approach projects without like a framework, like you're fucked, like you might just not do it. And so, I started this thing where like anything I get into, I have to make rules and they can be nonsensical. They can be very sensical. Like they can be useful. They can be completely useless. They can actually just make your life hell. Um, like my ex-wife right. and I, we did this photo project. Like we had this art show and one of the things we said was, okay, it's about home. Well, we need to do a photograph, uh, randomly just a hundred abandoned buildings to complete this show and, and then also build the installation. <laughs> and, and it just gave us something of like, just having to do that every day, like regardless of whether or not um, we felt creative or anything, even if we were just on a bad day, at least we got, you know, four houses shot today. So that makes us feel good. And it would just kind of keep the juices flowing. And so I've just found like 
the blank canvas is the worst place to ever start. So throw some rules on it and now you got some stuff to push against, you know? And so yeah, it's kind of carried yeah. over into like everything else. And you like, yeah, what is, like, so you've got strike anywhere in the, um, uh, more, yes. Um, okay. are you yeah. still doing that? I, you know, yeah, it's not like it's been, it's, as you get older, I mean, you probably know this, but like, it's, you understand like it's okay to spread things out and like, right. you know, like I remember how compressed everything felt in Inquisition days um, or even early strike anywhere where it was like EP seven inch record, 18 months later, new record, you know, and like you just kind of like, if you take a moment, like fly off of that wheel, like maybe stand outside of it and look, um, you have time. So, I mean, and also like I'm probably pretty slow creatively. Like I have, I always write like every day and there's always, you know, melodies, you know, gibberish melodies or melody less words that I have to like pair up to find out who wants to go to the dance together. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, as far as like the, as far as the, the, the non, non-musical poetry and the non-lyrical music. Um, and then, try to figure that out but don't i'm not too precious about like what i save what i capture um i had this thing that happened when we were striking where we was about to record exit english which was our second full length and i was working at a grocery store in church hill and parked my car it came out eight hours later car was broken into i had not taken out my 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 go bag to rehearsal practice from the night before so all my all my notebooks and oh my uh, tape, a little handheld tape recorder with you know every possible thing you you would need to go out to the studio all the songs so I, I had to just kind of reconstruct from memory and or just make things fresh like and it was like the next week we had to start tracking up at salad days for exit english oh, so that's that was like so fucked up and, and like a panic set in and we didn't really, there was no way to like, man, some friends of mine took, took a day off work with me to wander through the alleyways. And this is, you know, Churchill, Shaco Bottom, uh, 2003. So it's way before all of the, <laughs> every single warehouse yeah. is now expensive condos. Like the whole reality <laughs> of that place was original Richmond, I would say, you know, yeah. um, it was like well, 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that probably still happens, but like, it was, you know, it was extra stupid of me, but I was just kind of like bleary and tired and like working, working some long shifts and then rehearsing for hours, um, up at the old Goodwill practice spaces on 25th street. But anyway, looking for my bag, maybe, maybe someone took the bag, but they dumped out the contents in some, in one of the many, many abandoned buildings, alleyways, the old tunnel down by Franklin street, like who knows where it went, but we never found it. Um, and so then I had to just come to terms with the, like the terror of man, that was all, all my notes for this record, everything that I, you know, and some of the songs, obviously you remember, like you, there were parts that, you know, but then there's so much of the content that's really important. Like the little details, um, that were lost and had to be rebuilt, like almost in the studio. Right. So luckily like supportive bandmates and Brian McTurnan, our, our friend and producer, made the record with us like they were all kind of there in that mix of like pushing me challenging me and then like you know nurturing <laughs> comforting my photos of my grandmother were in there like you know it, like irreplaceable things it wasn't just like it wasn't just like the technical secrets of 
you know, of a punk record. It was like a really important bag that should not have been in my car. <laughs> like, anyway, um, but yeah, I guess the long story is like Great Collapse is kind of a band that just like works on a rotation. Some of what you were saying about 92FU reminded me of that because most of those guys are in Portland and they will get together just before the pandemic and just like go through tons of like completely written, almost overwritten you know, five part songs with time changes inside the song, inside the bar of of like a fast part. Oh god. Like it goes from three four to four four to maybe eleven seven Fuck. and you're like, what? But like there's anyway, so that is that's that's that band where we're like constructing cathedrals out of these blazing <laughs> technical hardcore songs. And uh we've done a couple tours, went to we just played a few shows in the States. Um Though on the West Coast only, and then gone to Europe, um, and where the record label that puts out Great Collapses material is over there and hits records in Germany. So that's that is a really fun project, and I love it. And we always want to do more. We always want to find a way to, you know, do another tour, play some more shows. Um, there's there's music still flowing flying around for an EP um, that we started kind of writing during the sound checks and the the dead time on the European the last European tour, which was in. 2018 so yeah like that's that's definitely membership in that has been a lot of fun and and everything like that but striking we're definitely like a primary band whenever it's possible for us to do something we will do it um and it's been like a like a, obviously we've slowed down a lot because of people having families and you know like jobs and th- things that are but also we really I guess we felt like we wanted to start doing things that were more curated, um, treating every show like it could be our last, having everything mm-hmm. be, you know, with friends and a part of communities that we care about, like, and, you know, just like, I guess, like, trying to give back and build on what we what we did when we used to tour for, like, the first 12 years of that band all the time, everywhere. But yeah, just, we wanted to make it a little more... I don't know. Like there there was a moment where we started to get a little numb and lost and exhausted from the the heavy touring. Um, even though, I mean, it was such also a privilege and amazing. And we got to be in many places all over the world and it wasn't, you know, like stunning. But like the thing is that eventually you start to like not feel as rooted in your community and like you get Mm -hmm. a little lost. You feel like you're kind of a cipher in both worlds. You're like too much of a ghost at home. And, right. you know, you worry that you start to lose your ability to to listen to your surroundings and play off of it and then contribute like your creativity kind of might get a little lost. Um, and then when you're out touring, you're like, you just, you're doing it with such almost an automatic, like inertia that you're also kind of like so worried about just not getting sick and making, you know, making your flights and, you know, hopefully that show doesn't cancel or we have the right immigration visas to Brazil or Japan. You know, like you're, you're so kind of lost in the technical aspects of it that you worry that you might get a little numb to the experiences or you have such limited time to be somewhere because you've got to get home and work to then be able to afford to do the next tour that you you know, can spend a day off in Santiago, Chile or, you know, wherever the fuck in Moscow, like you're, you're just kind of like, okay, cool. We play the show. How do we get to the airport? And that's not a great, it's not a great way to experience like a once in a lifetime event, like, right. in, you know, in a punk, in a punk scene that has welcomed you and you're stoked. And, but it, in some weird way, 
it made just like everything that happened in the show, like the only time, like the only way we knew a place was because of like the feeling of people singing with us and jump, you know, like, like the activist tables of that particular community setting up and sharing that meal, like with the punks and, you know, that stuff like, but we never got to like spend too much time, you know, hitting a museum or, you know what I right. mean? Like, like those, and I'm sure every, many bands have that same issue, but I think it started to wear on us after years and years of like, you know, yeah, like, like we wanted to, to kind of be able to like have a, a richer experience in some of the places that we've been dozens of times, but only known the venue that we love the venue. You know what I mean? Like that shit was awesome. But like, what else happens here? Like what else is driving everyone's lives? Like, how are they relating to these songs? You know, what, what else, what else is going on? So that was why we slowed down a bit. Anyway, over 10 years, pulled together some songs and recorded in uh, 2019. And that came out last summer, Nightmares of the West, which I guess is an EP, but feels pretty complete to us. It's only seven songs though. When I listen to those two bands, it sounds like, you are approaching the vocal or the lyrics, but like the way you, not, not just the way you sing, but more like the content, like, like the way you approach those, like the voice is different. Um, like the writing voice seems different between great claps and, um, strike anywhere. You know, I don't know how much, there's definitely not, it's not exceptionally deliberate. <laughs> like, but I think I'm just trying to, like you would do, just you try to listen to it and try to get, like, try to strip away, you, if you have a standard way of working or approaching material, you want to make sure you don't bring that to the table and you want to just let it, let it, let the music and let that moment and the different people in the bands, different experiences like drive it. So great collapse has got Chris, who was the original guitar player in rise against and right. Todd, he was in a bunch of bands and, and, and Joe, who was in set your goals. Like it's got, you know, folks that were in the same community touring and like having that kind of same life, during the same period of time that Strike Anywhere was was constantly touring and constantly recording. And, and I think the, everything slowed down for them around the same time. And I met Joe at the Epitaph Warehouse. We both had a job in 2011 and 12, like sending people limited Operation Ivy records all over the world. Like We were like the, the, the male fulfillment crew. Um, and uh, so oh, yeah. it was really fun getting to know him and... And then he was like, hey, me and my friend are writing these songs. We're, we've all kind of just like come back from, come back in from the cold of like constantly touring for five or eight years. And let's see what, if you like, it took me like another year to like open the file that he sent. And then another six months after that to start, you know, feeling confident about, oh, I could, I could put some lyrics to this. And that, it, it kind of happened at the same exact time that Strike Anywhere was taking like a pretty formalized break. Um, you know, everybody was having their kids and our drummer, Eric, um, he's, uh, he works for the band Imagine Dragons. Like he is, a I don't know, production assistant, roadie extraordinaire with that band. And so he, oh, and, wow. and that happened because he was working at the 930 club in between Strike Anywhere tours and just ran into them in their early days. And, but that's his like, you know, that's his day job. That's his, his real thing. So we were working around all that. And then also just making a, kind of an effort to slow down and like i mentioned try and really control and curate what we do like and and, and have that feeling like if this was the last show or if these are the last songs like you know, let's make it count like let's let's keep away from industrializing the process <laughs> like and not that we ever did that but i think we we're always pretty aware of like yeah 
how fragile and fleeting and, and stuff and how the world doesn't need yet another punk record that doesn't, well, at least in our view, at least to us, <laughs> this is a tricky thing to say, but like contribute something new um, or at least right. add, add something, right? Instead of just subtract or be a consumable. So the Great Collapsing, it felt like, like an ex, like a project like a, like an experimental idea of okay how about these four songs oh that's cool and then Chris Chassie he just records all of it and then we just self release you know like total like DIY like like you know, burn some CDs fold it <laughs> like we were doing that in 2012 oh, yeah. and 13 like you know like um, we would be on shows and not put our names on the shows like you know just kind of I guess propaganda played at the Glass House in Pomona in California and. Flatliners also played in War on Women. And then we just got there at the door and I'd already asked Propaganda, you know, hey, I've spanned this new band. Can we open up for you guys like at doors? And they were like, yeah, you know, of course, that sounds cool. Like super sweet. And, and, um, and so we knew all, we were friends with all those bands from all our other bands, but they saw us and like, what are you guys doing here? You know, looking like, like, oh, and then we just like said, where are we going to play first? Where's this band? And so we did. And that was kind of how Great Collapse did it. Like we just set up and renegade it, like open for like whatever hardcore matinee was going on. Just be the lo- that local band that, you know, oh, yeah. wasn't on the flyer. And that's kind of how we wanted to do it. And then we had our, you know, hand burned CDs, like, you know, and all that and MP3 download piece of paper. Um, anyway, and then our friend Oisey in, in Germany said, let's put, let's put out a record. What's happening. Um, he liked it. And so we did that. And it was kind of, it was really helpful during that period of time when Strike Anywhere was only playing like the fest in a whole year, you know, right. like down in Gainesville, like, or only doing like a seven days across a weekend in Europe per year or you know even less anyway still wanted to play and there was always like strike anywhere music everyone's just trading around riffs and like garage banding some ideas and you know and i wanted i always wanted to make sure that like those two things were separate and i i don't really know how if there was anything conscious about the approach being different i guess i could say that like with with Great Collapse, I can do maybe things that are a little more surreal and weird, like the <laughs> like the crass of humans writing workshop right. in me. <laughs> Those influences kind of come out. Of, it's weird because Great Collapse's music is not, it, it's probably less noisy and less furious in yeah. many ways than Strike Anywhere's. But the, the like more like surreal, expansive, uh, I don't know how to say it, conceptually risk-taking part of me comes through maybe with that band but I also listen to like, you know, Craig Collapse is like based in Portland and I have a lot of affection. I still was in Portland for like three years, like 17 years ago. And like, so in our recent record, the neither Moscow nor Washington again. So all of a sudden, that's the LP title, right? That could never be a strike anywhere LP title. My band would be like, nah, <laughs> like, what are you doing? And so that's a part of it. Like I get to do a little more stuff that's like, not that there isn't an editorial process, but it's just different different tastes. Um, but we do the this kind of tribute, to whatever, carrying the torch, Portland punk thing, the listen, Nazi, never again. That's from Discontent by Poison Idea, the Portland kings of punk. So that was the thing, oh, you know, yeah. the parts of Great Collapse that are, I guess we're trying to like, that environment, like, is an influence the way that Richmond is the influence on Strike Anywhere. Like, have you found yourself like... 
because I mean, I've known this is kind of happening to me starting to, as I'm writing now for 500 with already doing the 92 FU stuff. It's like, I'm finding the shit that I'm fucking around with in 92 FU. I've learned things about myself that are now coming back to the other band, like in the way that I yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're having this talk in this way. Cause it's like, like both we're in a similar spot. Like both of these bands are nestled in punk and they're like, but one of them is like your, the root goes all the way back, you know, and is right. it goes right. into Richmond deep. And like, and the other one is kind of like, you know, there's like, a there's kind of a newness. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, anyway, they both reflect it, both bounce back and forth on each other, but I'm, I'm really careful not to, I mean, it wouldn't even be interesting to me to like, um, I don't know, re- repeat a concept or even like a, a technical thing, like a, like a phrasing or a melody. Like there's, there's definitely things that like, there's a part of me that emerges for like strike anywhere. Then there's another part for great collapse. And like, there's, there's pretty bright lines between the two for every reason. Like it would, you know, dishonor both projects. If, if what I was doing was interchangeable in any kind of way. Um, and at least to me, like, and so a lot of this, you know, a lot of this stuff could be lost on folks. Cause it's like, well, it's like fast melodic hardcore. How is it different? Like, you know, but it's like, like you know, it's kind of hard to, I'm not trying to be too pretentious about it, but like, you know, it, it, for like being and being in, embedded in a collective art project where you're building something with people, it has to be about, the individuals, the differences, the context, like that's how, you know, any art becomes interesting and can connect to other people. It's because you're being, you're being honest. Like you're getting, kind of getting out of your own way, um, you know, and you're just kind of letting that thing breathe and being a witness to it while you're a part of it. Um, that's the, the weird contradiction, right? Like you're kind of like, maybe especially maybe as a singer writing words, you are trying to capture the feeling and add to it that the music has and you're trying to kind of like steer some of the like the emotions and the dynamics um to help drive the lyrics but then also the lyrics themselves are being driven you know inspired by the music so there's this completely like feedback loop thing that doesn't have a beginning or an end that you have to you have to honor and and be able to see clearly um and that's so that definitely means by necessity, it's going to be different. It's going to be a different experience, hopefully a different enough sound. Um, there's a great collapse song by Eric. So Eric Kane and, and strike anywhere. He travels a lot like for his job. And so right. when great collapse was doing tours, Eric's also in Europe and he would come out and see shows on like every great collapse tour that happened in here, like all two of them and, and, you know, hang out and like give us his notes and like, he, you know, had like a really, oh, which is cool, you know, like, and cause he was just there and like he and Todd, Todd's the drummer of great collapse were fans of each other. And like, anyway, it was cool. Cause Eric had a, had a take on certain great collapse songs that were like, yeah, we would have never done that strike anywhere, but it's cool. Like it, it, it almost shows that like, something about great collapse, like helped me open, you opened up that like weird surrealist part. Like I would be referencing things, um, you know, like flux of pink Indians or amoebics, you know, that not really anyone would pick up on because it sounds so different. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, but anyway, I think that was stuff that Eric mentioned appreciating. And there, there's a kind of kinship between the two bands, like outside of just me being the voice, like, and, and great collapse definitely has an ornery, like, didn't want to be on a label really didn't you know, like definitely like let's see how diy we can do this <laughs> like and uh right. we did a couple shows in portland that were really cool and they were just local just you know, like setting up with local bands and like and it was just super fun and i guess it's something that felt like some twister shows in the 90s where there's like 
just random locals at the bar and like some some hippies <laughs> like you know oh, and you're yeah. just and then like hardcore and punk kids but you know a smattering like 60 or 70 folks and this is just like that feeling of like this is what's going on in our hometown scene tonight right right like that was that was a really nice feeling and it was good to kind of like be able to do that with with great collabs well it's interesting when you when you're talking about doing these two bands because the thing that I've noticed with me is like when I'm writing for 92FU, it is also like an experimental area where whatever I come up with for the band that is like the band that's going to be playing the shows for me, that's 500. These have to be songs I can sing every night also, or like that I'm going to play every week at least. And so there's certain topics I don't want to fucking revisit every week. You know what I mean? Like I might write a song for 92FU that's like, I mean, it was almost more like art than, than the way that traditional pop music or whatever is. Um, and, you know, it didn't really have maybe a chorus um, or something like yeah. that. And, um, you know, if you're playing with a live band, you, you kind of want a chorus. You know, <laughs> you kind of want people to be able, able to sing along. I mean, it, it, it's, it's cooler for me when they are, you know, like I feel better because I feel like I'm giving people something that they're enjoying, you know, and, and they might not really want to sing along with a 92 of you. Song. So it's cool in that regard, too, because I can kind of like go down these areas where like, you know, if I'm writing a song about like my grandma just passed recently, like, I don't know if I can put a chorus in a song directly that's about something like that i mean i I might come something a little more abstracted but you know you can kind of just address these things and just be like boom and then and so that's kind of how i do with that and then you know yeah there's it sounds like we have the same situation where there's an economy to strike anywhere songs like that my bandmates forge and there's a there's been a less is more and like a do we really need that part kind of like editorial process with strike anywhere since yeah yeah maybe the second year of the band. <laughs> like I wouldn't think we were writing some weird, long epic songs from 99 to 2000. After that, we were like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, but, right. um, you know, and I, and there's a, there's kind of a, I don't know how to say it, like, like a spaciousness, like it probably more of like a punk jangliness, like a influence in, and even maybe the more, even the hardcore ish songs that strike anywhere has, um, where it's like a little more opened up, whereas things in Great Collapse, there's like, it's compressed. Like there's like mm-hmm. stuff happening in every tiny bar. There's like, and I think there are, I mean, really cool details and like musical moments that are like, you know, I, I guess the danger of Great Collapse is that everyone could do just too much in one moment of a song and it's just be like, oh, like what's happening in there, you know? So that's, that's, that's more like, it, the mixing and figuring out what the song's actually the final form of them has to do with subtracting things. Whereas with Strike Anywhere, we can carefully decide in the final form if we want to add a few things, you know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, which, which, you know, it's crazy, but the, and that's natural. That isn't like some concept that we're trying to like hammer into the bands. That's just like really how they look, how they live in the world. So like Strike Anywhere, an example, is the end of the final song on Nightmares of the West, which I don't know if you made it all the way back there. It's only seven songs, but there's a lot of music to listen to. Um, But there's this, we kind of like bleed, like it's like a little bit of a like dubby moment for us, um, which is Mm -hmm. cool because we finally get to like tap into that um, where we bleed all of the instruments and vocals into this noisy crescendo at the end. It's the end of like a kind of 
mosh part, <laughs> let's say outro right. of, of We Make the Road by Walking of that last song. And it's just all of a sudden the room sound is the drums start like bleeding, like washing the cymbals, like everything becomes like this, this like, anyway, the, you can't differentiate necessarily between the instruments anymore. And like, there's, I'm screaming, Jason Mazzola is also screaming with, they can't tell, you know, where those voices start and end. And that's how the record ends. It's just this sort of trudging, um, noisy dub of itself that just appears. And the weird thing about it is like, while we made that and like sent texts to Brian, like, Hey Brian, go in your kitchen, throw all that stuff in your kitchen with a, with a room mic and then take that sound and like put it, put it like a sub subliminal thing underneath it. Like we really wanted to like have that analog dub noise feeling at the end but maybe not maybe not even without using those words so i mean it to figure out what the fuck we all want it when we're all excited is also like you just need someone who's like sympathetic because we're all like no do it like this oh no that rolls and like but at the end of it i realized that like what we did was since the song is about unity like of course unifying in the face of like all of the separation, all of the noise and distortion, and we're using noise and distortion to describe that. Um, and all the, you know, the instruments are losing their their distinctive quality. They're all becoming one thing. It was a metaphor for what the song was about, like sonically. Oh, yeah. And that was, for us, it was like, wow, fuck, we, we really did that. Like, But we stumbled into it. It wasn't like we had this, this, this grand concept that we had to make happen. We just wanted it to feel a certain way. And we realized that that feeling had the exact meaning of, you know, the, the metaphor for the content of the song at the end of the record, the whole record, all that stuff just happened in that last bar of the last song, you know, and it's like a minute and 35 second hardcore song. Right. And like, but anyway, those are, that's kind of what I mean. Like it still has to feel new and you still have to feel like this is this is meaningful like if this is the only thing i made if this is the last right. thing i made it's it's, yeah. it's got to be it's got to have that it's got to be precious and it's got to have all of that all of that heat and debate and finally get through all the arguments to realize oh man we are all agreeing on this one thing let's do that thing let's do the thing we're all agreeing on so anyway that's that was Dude. and it's also like a a production moment where we're like really we could not replicate that live right there's no like that whole ethic is we're like in like a, a dub studio moment there just and, and that that felt good too that felt new to us interesting is like like you said precious twice in here and it's weird because for me (laughs) there was a thing that happened with with, at some point in my life where i realized i i couldn't treat things preciously like 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 what you're talking about when you lost your lyrics like you you kind of have to like keep going and like you kind of have to like hold them to a standard but at the same time it's very precious and it's like constantly having this dichotomy of like trying to not get caught in the moment, but also be present in the moment. <laughs> like, yeah, not get over, over run by it, not get trapped by it, but simultaneously like, like love it and, 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 and acknowledge it and 
you know, be thankful for it. Like that is this weird dichotomy that happens. I think when you're, when you're trying to make music on a, like a <laughs> level of getting and, out sometime this year. <laughs> for sure. And, and just be a person. Like it's, it's really yeah. goes, it really, it's like the strange lessons that creating these, uh, I don't know, you know, di- di- difficult genre, um, that is a part of the spine of this counterculture that also has this psychological bonus effect where we work with these concepts and we don't have to, we don't have access or privilege to be, be philosophers. <laughs> like, you know, we don't even have to have all the right words, but this feeling is, is like indelible and true. And like, we cannot get attached and we can't be too, worried that we're losing it and this is the one this is the keystone of this entire song oh i don't know that melody anymore because my notebook got stolen or you know like and at the same time every every time you write something down every little like every little thing that you that you record and that you witness and that you think has some tiny tiny little worth even to you even to track that moment that morning when you're sitting in your car on your lunch break from work trying not to fall asleep like whatever it is you're in an airport <laughs> um, all those things, like, you know, if they are there and you can but make it work in the moment, kind of marshal those resources and then let it, and then let it go. Like some of the stuff that you think will be the cornerstone of that song in the end, maybe they're not even there anymore. Right. Like right. some of the other stuff that grew up around it are now, is now that song. So I, I've learned that too over the years. Like you really, can't get too attached. I, and then also, I know you spoke to Robbie about this stuff like last week, but I kind of learned all that in an abrupt way with Inquisition. Like we were kind of just getting into our like creative prime and being able to really summon the songs and have everybody, everybody like, at, you know, at the top of their ability at the time and the top of their ability to write together. Um, then the band ended like, you know, and it was almost it felt like that too soon feeling, but in some ways that like if that band had continued on and we've been able to like stay in that moment or even kind of recognize that moment, say like, Oh, cool. Let's, let's bust out another record or two. Um, because now we finally know what we're doing. <laughs> like, you know, maybe that would have been a mistake. Like, I mean, obviously it didn't happen. So there's no parallel timeline we can explore. Um, and that's always a waste of breath. But I do think that that kind of initial loss, um, kind of helped inform me about what we're saying. Like, don't get attached. Like, there are there are definitely things that you're going to capture or see and want to replicate that will no longer serve you anymore and no longer actually be what you feel that what, what they were at that moment. That feeling, you know, like that's always going to come back. And that's what um, my bandmate Matt Sherwood said when uh, the notebooks got stolen. He was like, "Yeah, that stuff came out of you. It's still there. It's in yourselves. Don't worry. It'll come back through in some way." So we're all we're all like, you know, totally wanting to make this like intense follow up record to changes the sound and had the songs and had the feeling it but we've been touring like a motherfucker and you know, so that's what the desperation was. It was like, you know, every every lyric that, that we like that worked there is the one we should use, goddammit. Like, you know, 'cause like it was like the clock was on us and limited resources and all this stuff and then it was it was almost a lesson like the world like Richmond taught us. It was like Richmond's tax, like don't get attached. We're gonna take all of your shit now. See what you can do. Richmond will do that. You know the thing that I love well, about you guys is like when you're a punk and you're, especially if you're an activist, there's like two ways you can approach things. You can be either anti what you know sucks 
or pro what you want to see. And I think a lot of folks have a kind of a, a, a point in their life where they, you know, maybe they've been on this other side of it. I was definitely on the other side of it. I was like, fuck this, fuck that. I was still somehow being positive, but like, and, and you realize like for sustainability, for being able to keep going, you can't do the anti thing the entire time. Like you have to figure out, okay, well, if I'm anti, um, you know, factory farming, then maybe just look at it more like I'm pro cruelty free, uh, you know, like looking for the positive way towards that. And somehow your music does that. Like you guys can take these subjects that like, you know, some band might just write the most depressing song in the world about it. And it'd just be like, rah, but you guys give people shit to sing along to shit that inspires them. And that's like the fuel that like makes things like the things that are attached to our culture are these act, like, it's definitely like activists. It's definitely like people working for these changes and these songs end up becoming kind of these catalysts that if folks, you know, if they're trying to do something hard that day, maybe they listen to and it inspires them or maybe they're not doing really that much that day and it inspires them to actually do something. But the way you put that together there, I think that's like a really good contribution. And I, I think like, I, I just wish more bands did it. And I think it's kind of hard to do because it challenges kind of people's expectations of things, you know? Well, thank you so much. I don't know if we can accept that or live up to that compliment. Um, and also it's not specifically like, you know, you know, where we come from, you know, our roots, like we're local, like, like, you know, all the way back to like inquisition, like local kids and seeing the different tides of folks coming into the city and particularly like the, what VCU was before it became what it is now, like a student art ghetto and, <laughs> kids from all over Virginia and other places in the country bringing culture and art. And then us kind of like unwashed suburban kids rolling in um, and sometimes just cleaning up the mess or picking up the pieces and sometimes like carrying through a very distinctive Richmond thread, um, you know, but it's, it's also, it's just the, the quality of the city. And I mean, we obviously like the first shows I saw that gave me that feeling that moved me happened to be four walls falling not, you know, it could have been when, like, if I had gone to the seven second show in 86, it could have been an outside influence. It just happened to not be. It was for falling, not news. And that record culture shock, that's kind of like the touchstone that Strike Anywhere still uses. We don't really, like, musically reference it, like, exactly, but the feeling of it and, like, the urgency of it and, and the way that, like, those songs detailed i was talking about like Dr. King samples and like discussions about oh, like yeah. environmental degradation. This is like 1988 and shit coming out of Richmond. Like, I mean, it's, it's still so seminal and moving to us that we still cover those songs. Like when we practice, like it's, um, and, and, and I guess it's also just like those, those lyrics, like that approach was like, here's some, we need catharsis right now. There's so much grief and trauma and anguish and we feel powerless about powerlessness about all of these things that we're also a part of. Like, you know, like, like white supremacy, like privilege, like, you know, like sexism, like all these conditions that are shot through us, you know, through everything, education, family, our surrounds, these monuments, <laughs> which is so fucking amazing about the past year, by the way. Um, you remember the public yeah. meetings on the Lee Monument in 92 and 3? Yeah. Can, I mean, yeah, like it, it's, it's, a, it's amazing, dude. Yeah, that's crazy you say that about um, four walls because that's actually 
like last week, actually, um, <laughs> I was like, you know what? Awesome. Everything I'm pulling for from from 92FU, that is exactly where I was. I, I thought it, at first it was like Gorilla Biscuits or something. Like I don't know, but then I was like going back and I was like, that, I was listening to that record. And I was like, oh shit, no, that's where. I, and like that same day, I hit up Kaylor. I was like, hey, you want to do a vocal? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> to try and get it because I was like, dude, I'm totally. Because I was is he going to? to I was like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 He's down. Fuck and and because awesome. I, I, I just realized, like, dude, I am just doing my version of everything I was inspired by to do that. I remember when um, you know, Jason Steed, uh, Tink, um, like yeah. Uh, yeah, that dude. Yeah. He he gave me the cassette back in like '97. I remember I was like staying at his house and I was like just riding my bike around the city and listening to it on my Walkman. I was just like, this is the best shit ever. Are you fucking kidding me? Because it was like everything, like it had the parts of Public Enemy that I loved when I was like fucking yes. nine, yeah. you know, but then Fuck fucking yeah. with hardcore <laughs> and positive. And I was like, oh shit, are you fucking kidding me? This is the best fucking record ever, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, like, I, still, you know, there's so much like the, the influence, like, so my older siblings i'm sorry siblings cousins i'm an only child but anyway as you can tell i grew up with my cousins um and they were uh five six seven years older than me roanoke punk women who were like that roanoke scene in the 80s and the 90s was insane and like the 80s apparently they had like tons of uk 82 bands roll through there like broken bones when they come through richmond they played it twice to people in roanoke like weird stuff like that would happen like legendary so when i was when i was a tween um they, you know, the, the, like look at Maximum Rock and Roll and the T-shirts they'd be wearing, and you know they would, you know, not just humor me, but kind of like make capes for me. Like, so there was has some influence from like the older, but like definitely rooted in Virginia scene. Um, and now I still kind of like, I still kind of look for like old pictures of that time before my time. You know, like, like so I started going to shows in '87 and all, and so, but before that, you know, I feel like the win that that was like a, a, maybe a bright line between generations, like the mid eighties, hardcore, like black flags coming through Richmond all the time. Like that stuff seemed huge. And it was, you know, white cross was playing like, like right before Guar invented themselves. Um, but I feel like that scene kind of like died a little. And then, so when you get to like 87 and the few shows still happening at rockets, like there's no more hard times. There's no more going. I never went to those clubs. Um, the barn parties we had the barn out in short pump that for walls would come play and other regional hardcore bands and that stuff was really influential too that was really exciting but yeah i, I guess like there was just a weird spot so we didn't have many things in our hometown scene to reference except for walls at that time and then it was like whatever other punk records existed in the world we could get our hands on and that means your influence just go you know sound shuffle like did I pick up that GBH record? Yes. Did I, did I also pick up that X-Ray Specs record? Cool. Like there was a year where I just listened to like, you know, X-Ray Specs and, um, Courage of Conformity, Eye for an Eye. Like really yeah. weird, diverse influence because like that's punk. Like I found it. Yeah. Is there more? Who knows? I just have this tape. Right. No, but, I mean, that, yeah. So I would say X-Ray Specs too was huge. Right. Yeah. Like it was probably still like, there's still, there was a few more comps and like, maybe sub fields within punk that, you know, by the time we're talking the mid nineties, everyone just back to rock and roll flip side, punk planet, even they really codified the scene. They really let you know how to find shit. 
Yeah, I mean, for for me, it was like the fucking God. It was just you know any local band that we could find stuff from. And, you know, and the thing is, like when me and Pat got into punk, like we got we, we saw Rancid's hyena video on 120 minutes, and I was like, yo, is that Biohazard? Like, what the fuck? Because they were like the only people that looked like that, you know? <laughs> right. And right. Whatever people say about selling out, dude. Like I was like, there's people that bring people into punk, and there's people that serve punk. And I'm forever fucking grateful those dudes decided to fucking put their video up there. But like, it, it yeah, you know, we got the tape, yeah. and then we started going to shows. And so like, I remember like I was formed around like a band like Action Patrol, and then I'd be listening to like Econo Christ, and then I'd be listening to Maximilian Colby. You know, like they were that that band was probably behind four walls and inquisition like maximally in cold like listening to that, and they were just fucking off the walk i mean they're not like i don't even know what kind of fucking music they are i mean to me they're punk in a song in a basement but like you know but like they were on some other shit but i remember um that dude playing the fucking that one song is called i think it's called like sparsely or something and he just plays his bass note basically for fucking like two minutes. And I remember yeah. just the basement on Broad Street, just all you could hear was the building rattling on this one fucking note. And then they just exploded. And I was just like, whoa, like that is fucking crazy. And that was Bob, Bob Boehner. Yeah, right? yeah, he Bob, yeah. Yeah. He, he passed away in 95. So, yeah. I, you know, that, yeah. Was, that was insane. I didn't realize like maybe I think I think it was their last show. Like they had announced that they were doing their last show or whatever the fuck. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, um, or maybe it was because he passed. I can't remember. But yeah, I, I, I didn't. I never got to meet him. But like I just knew a lot of the people. A lot of the people I was friends with were good friends with him. You know, and I was like, oh yeah, shit, that was, you know, that was devastating. That's what Four AM Friday means too. That available yeah. album. Yeah, that's when he died. And yeah, we had gone on this tour where we like went north in the fall of uh, maybe 94 and or 95. But anyway, we, we I think it was 94. So we went up north to play some shows in New England and we played Hampshire College at this place called the Red Barn, which is a pretty storied venue. I know Fugazi played there a lot, like had like it had some years on it as far as punk shows. And this show was so crazy and it shows you like how much everyone in Richmond was expanding and, and going out. Like, so we ended up crossing over with Maximilian Colby and action patrol. And I even want to say Whirly bird. And it was just Richmond bands all lived within two blocks of each other back home, but were like totally unplanned booked on the oh same day God. as, as their totally different tour routing to put the, pulled them together. So we just hung out. Like it was like such a funny, weird time of, serendipity and the show was great you know and, the, and watching Maximilian Colby I remember I remember that song I remember that one note I remember Bob and we all got really close and Robbie our bassist and Bob really got close and so you know six months after that or whenever he passed it was like it's like you know a lightning bolt of grief that went through the whole community um, that avail yeah. memorialized in their song really well yeah I mean FCA, I know, yeah, yeah FCA yeah yeah fucking i remember hearing that shit and just being like damn you know because like i think like uh, i think the folks that i had met that uh, at that point oh god i think it was, they were doing food not bombs at um that little basement and on west franklin 
I think it was like yeah. 10, yeah. 30 West Franklin or something. And a lot of those dudes, you know, they were friends. That, that, that was like one of those things where like, oh shit, like, you know, damn, like it, it kind of, it was weird. It was, it was, it was, it was cool to see how people cared for him after he passed, you know, not knowing him, seeing like these folks and like, you'd talk to people and they'd be talking about him. And it was weird. Cause I, it kind of like, like, you know, two years later, I think, um, that's when Patrick passed. And then it was for me, yeah, it was, was like my, my, my personal thing of that, you know? So it was, yeah. God, it, those losses, like, and a few others, like that happened right around the same two year period, like for me and other friends, like it really felt like the, it was one of those moments where the world just tells you like, you're not immortal. Like this awesome, youthful, vibrant, like, you know, creative, scenes community right like that's that's evolving and expanding you know exponentially every year you know from like you could draw like a line from 91 to 96 and you get like 500 more active punk people in richmond like that kind of thing like and you see these are like there's this cost there's this sense of like like we get wounded like we grow up a little like there's this is wisdom and this you know like again like we have to and every moment is important. And then we also can't get attached. Like every moment is also going to be different from the last and some people won't be there anymore. And I think that was the first time that feeling you know, washed through me and probably hundreds of others like, Oh shit, you know? And I, I guess probably earlier eras of Richmond scene had that stuff too. In fact, you know, obviously like hard drug use, like took a lot of people out in the nineties, just oh, like yeah. they did in the eighties. Like we didn't learn, like some of those lessons were not learned you know, and even even with all of the good work that, and I think Straight Edge like is it on a whole like a pretty positive thing. Even though obviously it goes through weird eras where it gets violent and strange and like you know, but I think mm-hmm. like that idea nestled within punk is pretty good, pretty pretty revolutionary too, and can really save people. Um, you know, so I always like to see it when it's positive, when it's still when it's still available for people in our movement. Um, What's well, one of the things? But yeah, like I I, people. I was going to say, I think it's one of the things where like, you know, just, you know, people have to learn, you know, it's their path, you know, it's, it's, it's like the same thing with like, I don't know, like maybe if your friends like, dude, don't work at this company, like they fucking suck. Like I remember having to tell one of my friends that and he, and it's like, dude, no, dude has to learn that for himself, you know? And it's like, I don't know, like people, you know, in hindsight, it can seem like, like, like folks are kind of like playing out these things, but you know, I think one of the reasons that people get attracted to drugs is because they really do, um, you know, they, 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 they're working on something that, you know, as humans, we're really not that different from each other. You know, like we all have pretty much like, we're very unique in certain ways, but like our base needs are like very similar. And there's things that just tap into these parts. And I just, you know, I look at it like I'm really fucking lucky that somehow I've managed to kind of have enough things in my life that when I was at those points, something just nudged me, you know, but that's what I look at it. Like I don't, I I can never look at it as like, um, that I know better or something. Cause I know so many people that got, you know, addicted to those kind of things. And like, they, they knew, you know, (laughs) it wasn't like a lack of knowing, you know, like, but it was, it was, it was a fucking, you know, there's something that happens there and it, it just, you know, I don't know, like raising a daughter, like, I'm just like, man, I hope I'm doing the right things that, you know, or I mean, if there's even anything I can do, I just hope something nudges them when they get to that point. 
um, that they don't go down that path. Or if they do go down that path, that they're able to survive it, they're able to learn from it. Because the other thing I do have a lot of is friends that have survived it. And right. I'll tell you, right. at this point, it's like for all that great stuff that was happening when I was younger, I would I would trade all – I mean, I don't regret any of it. I loved it. But I am the happiest I've ever been in my life now, and it's because I know the value. And back then, yeah. I didn't. You know, like, you, right. like until you feel – and that was the worst thing is when those folks were dying, like, we didn't – it sometimes felt like the end of the world because we were like, how the fuck can you go on tomorrow? Like, this person's gone. Like, this – this, you know, this, the star in my fucking universe isn't there anymore. And as you get older, like it doesn't get any fucking easier, but you, somehow you're like amassing value too, you know? Yeah. And I never saw that. Yeah. Like when I was like, like you, you never forget and it never changes. And there's still that, that loss, that wound, you know, but, but as yeah. far as like how you contextualize it and like, almost in the memory of and despite of that pain, yes. like like love the people around you and carry carry the effect and the influence that person had. Like like that legacy of that of that friend. You know, and their their destiny was to live a short life, you know, and, and all of that. But like the the memory of it and and even like, you know, the scar is extremely important yes. and, and should should be cherished. Yeah, like, I mean, any time that, you know, I've come across those losses since then, it's like, I know that second that, like, I might not know what it looks like right now, but in two years, I'll figure it out. I'll, I guarantee you I'll be carrying a, a piece of that person. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I couldn't tell you what it is. It's so crazy because it's like, you know, you think you, you know, you, well, you know your friend and you think you know what the thing is that's important to you about them. And it, it's kind of crazy how sometimes, like, the real important thing about them, the, the thing that maybe actually like really connected you guys can kind of emerge after that loss, you know, and, and it, yeah. it becomes a thing. It's like the thing that you want to, you would desperately want to put a word on and yeah. have a night with that person when they're alive. You often don't get to know what that is until after they're gone. It'll happen with us too, right? For the yeah. people who survive us. Like, yeah, so my friend Carter Graham passed away in 2013. Um, yeah. And he was just a wonderful guy, like, um, and charismatic, irascible, influential. Anyway, he died in a fire, like on Chimbrosa Boulevard, his apartment, his apartment that like I helped him move into years before that. Like, it's just tragedy upon tragedy, right? You know, like, and he's like, he had moved, he had been a part in the most like almost inhuman way of like, he was the center of like nine different cliques in Richmond, like including our old friends of like going to high school together, going, getting into punk together, writing zines, you know, he was there at the first acquisition shows. He was there at the last, you know, like, but he was also that dude with all of that power and depth throughout the decades of his life until 40 when he died for like, again, nine other Richmond cliques that we all converged at his memorial and all of course knew each other in different ways. Like he had that power and that influence in, in ways that almost seemed like, you know, was he five different people? Was he me? And he wasn't, it was all him. It's just like, you know, and he, he get he died alone in his apartment. Like no one could save him. It was, you know, bad wiring. The kitchen blew up. You know, the smoke killed him before the fire did. Like all of that horror. You know, all that powerlessness of you know, and all of us have that feeling of like, what if that day was different? What if one of us was there? What if anything was different? You know, about it. And you can't. It's a hard thing. Like you, you, you end up like 
hurting yourself with that guilt and things you can't change or help. And he wouldn't want that. You know, he, he, he would have loved the complexity of what his memorial was like. And that was something a friend of mine told me just like last week. Like, remember Carter's memorial? Of course you do. He would have loved that shit. All the, like the bike messenger people and the like West End punks from the 90s. Like all the, we tried to even name the clicks, of course. You know, figure out like right. that bunch of people that, that kind of like the Southside BMX crew but they weren't or like the post 804 guys like whatever you know like trying to find names for clicks that don't even know they have a name just right because carter would love that carter would have post gamed his own memorial and laughed at all the social complexities of it oh my god yeah i mean that's that's see the and that's the other thing too is like it, when, when you see things like that it also makes you kind of like wait a minute what are these divisions about you know, like, like that was like a really powerful thing when I, that I realized kind of early on. And when, when, um, we started playing was at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're all here because something is lacking somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like we're not seeing how the other thing is appealing. Like something is more appealing here that we have to come here. So we're probably more alike than we are different, you know? And I saw that happen with you, especially. Like, I saw you, I saw, like, your influences, like, like definitely, like, the East Bay punk, and then but the, the, the really, like, politically astute, you know, soul-searching, like, Jeff Ott, you know? Like, oh, like yeah. all, all the things that I saw in your 15-year-old brain, like, when we, when we first met and hung out. Um, and then... And then it was like hardcore, like Halo Four, like let's do this. This shit is awesome too. Like, and we had like that was always a part of like my life too. I was never, whatever, one kind of punk person or you know, like I felt all that stuff equally, and I knew it was all important and needed to be together. Like, so when we so Strike Anywhere formed, it was like like a couple like older punks like me and Sherwood and then some folks uh five seven years younger and so we always joked that it looked like we had like three hardcore guys two straight edge guys two like anarcho punks or like you know like and that wasn't right. we were laughing about how limited those categories were even at the time but but that's kind of the tribes that we came from to be the bit to start this band and we all had those and then we started like Again, we had these funny anecdotal categories like, yeah, it's like we love Billy Bragg and we love Gorilla Biscuits. So this is one of those Billy right. Biscuits songs, you know, like, or, or like Tragedy and The Who would be another one. <laughs> like some of, some of the songs that we started, that, like You're Fired, for example, other Shrek songs, are also based on Smith's songs, Johnny Marr riffs that we then turned into hardcore songs like but didn't really change a chord <laughs> like just for fun oh, yeah. and then they ended up being vital parts of those those you know two minute hardcore songs i mean you know and that's a, you know that's the cool thing about you know like kind of thinking back to like the stuff that i would listen to when i first got into punk i didn't have the sophistication in my brain to realize that I shouldn't be listening to this because it was outside of this box. You know, it was still, it was all yeah. in this new kind of box. And I got trapped in that for a minute. Like I, 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 and I, I mean, I still listen to the other things, but I feel these conflicts of like, well, Oh fuck. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm listening to fucking Iconochrist. Now I'm listening to, to rap, you know, like, and, and I felt that my entire life. But then at a certain point I was just like, dude, what if, <laughs> what if I just listen to shit that makes me happy? And I kind of realized for myself though, that, 
I'm just a punk. Like I, like I just, I, I don't know. Ever since then, regardless of whatever I'm listening to, or regardless of whatever I'm doing, like that is just who I am for some reason. And it, it I'll yeah. probably never stop. And it took me a while to kind of fully accept that. Cause some, you know, like I used to have this thing of saying, like you look at someone like Ian McKay, like, can you imagine him at a dinner party with like, like let's say he had like a really normal girlfriend or something and her dad he's either the world's biggest loser or the most awesome dude ever for still doing what he's doing when he was like 16 years old you know and like to me i think it's fucking awesome because you know he's following his heart um but to people that you know think that you know you have to start doing different things for whatever reasons it might not look like that um, well, it's cool because, yeah. like, Ian McKay gave us the concept of the adult crush. Like, oh, yeah. you know, when we were not adults yet by any stretch, and like, but we could see it. We could see that horizon and watch people change and watch. So, this sense of commitment, the bond that we had to this, obviously, it's not a youth culture anymore, and like, maybe never was. But like, because even when we were teenagers and, and children, we saw proper adults still punk as fuck like you know and it was really important to see that like whoever they were whatever their story was like this kind of like the spectacle of it is really important i mean it shows that there's other doors opening in the world for all of us like we're not just going on this path that the lottery of birth chose for us you know right like go to public school get someone pregnant work in a factory or you know work at a bank or you know, all that stuff like it's not the only place we can go and it's not and if you do some of that stuff you you know but you still hold on to this this set of ideals the set of i almost think it's like a a creative thinking the empathetic creative thinking where you can kind of like because of the the economic nature of these songs but also what they pack inside the richness of what they how they move us of these songs like his example is like and this is another way of like how Richmond was the right blend of not sophisticated, but not too big to have all these different tribes that never interconnected. Like I could love born against well-fed fuck for like every reason. And then also love the storm by judge and be like, right. These two songs are doing, they do this particular thing and you'd like to actually compliment each other. You know, when in that moment in real life, the dudes from born against and the dudes from judge are probably not friends at all. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and people who other folks maybe in bigger cities or with cities with more sophistication about what people like versus what they don't, who they are, what all that means. Like people who love judge would not be the same people who love born against. But in Richmond, that's like all of us, like, right. Like yeah. there's some kind of perfect balance, you know, where we could absorb all those influences and take away, especially like what I'm awkwardly failing at trying to describe, but like the emotional and philosophical payload of a punk song or a hardcore song or, or any good music really that has that revolutionary impact on who you are and you bond with it. You carry it through your years and you're, you know, it's just like, it's the door that you walk through, but it's like you walk out, of, you walk out of the small enclosed room of what was expected of you of normal life into the world that has no walls and yeah, the walls falling is being referenced, but like there's, there's all of that. Like, I just, I feel like the, the impact and the density of the cultural package of, of this art form is way more than the sum of its parts all the time.
Dude, and that reminds me of something I got to bring up. I was walking down Gray Street in 2003, I think. And I was walking by Twisters. And at this point, I had, like, after 500 broke up, I just went, I became a recording engineer and just head down did that shit for like six years. <laughs> like just if my friends saw me is because they were recording with me. That's about it. And yeah, I, yeah, I never yeah. went out and I was walking down gray street and I heard twisters just erupting. And I was like, what the fuck? And I like stood outside and I looked up on the window and, um, I, I like, I could see just people going insane I was like, man, this is like, I think, um, I can't remember who I was walking by with, but I was like, dude, this is what Inquisition shows used to be. And it was fucking against me. I had no idea who the fuck they were. <laughs> like, I was just doing my own shit. And I, I just saw the fly. I was like, tonight you did it against me. And um, it was it was a fucking great moment for me as a punk because I realized, like, oh, this shit just keeps going on. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And and that it was just so fucking it made me so happy in my heart to hear that energy that I heard from you guys when I was like 16 years old, 15 years old, being in this fucking crowd. They were just I mean, I think they're looking back. They were playing like, um, God, uh, like pints of Guinness. So it was like the ultimate time to fucking walk by Twisters. Right. And like they're playing that shit and the crowd is just yelling it louder than the P.A. You know, and I was just like, that's awesome. You know, but just, yeah, just thinking yeah. about kind of like time period, like that is, that is, and that's the thing too. Like I definitely, that experience taught me that like for whatever changes there are, it's going to be all right because like whatever it is that punk and hardcore tap into, that's still going to be there. It's just, things are going to be different. You know, you might fucking <laughs> put your flyers out on Instagram or whatever, but like, it's still going to be the same thing. And, and it's actually kind of like maybe even a bit cooler now because it with every generation, the music just gets more, I think realer almost and like more sophisticated because those boundaries really aren't there, you know? Yeah. That's a great way to say it. I think it's also just like, it's like the natural, it's adding more detail and adding more connected tissue. So like in the earliest times, people were staking out gigantic pieces of territory, like with genres, you know, and like, and, and, and pushing the corners until the room exploded, you know, until like, but everyone's trying to get as far out as you can because like, now there's no limitations. Now, like we can make music, like it sounds like it feels inside our bodies. Like, you know, that's ultimately what punk and hardcore, and you know, then like you get alternative music and all the incredible permutations of metal that also happens, like starting, but from the, the ground zero of punk, it's like more of like an operating philosophy and not even always a sound. It's just like a way to get there, a way to, a way to, to drill down as deep as possible. But now every little piece of that environment is being filled in. Like, so we're detailing the space between pop punk and hardcore. Every generation gets it a little more, find something else, finds like a little, like another, another thing that hasn't been claimed. Like, or we're getting the, the long, beautiful spaces between like bands like wire, right? Like they right. like definitely a, a, like a proto hardcore band referenced by all the DC punks, right? Like, completely like like a like a let's remove rock and roll and just see how intense we can go like that and then like you can go all the way from there to like you know just like 
I don't stiff little fingers or, you know, like every kind of permutation of hardcore and punk, the, the details happen as we go further out in time. And I think it's awesome. Like, for example, we were on tour like 10 years ago and the band title fight maybe had just yeah. been rolling for like a year or two and they opened that tour and God, and we were like this. I mean, I, I was like moved. I was like, this is great. This is kind of how I wanted, uh, a lot of the emotional hardcore in the nineties wasn't doing this, but I feel like they wanted to. And now we, now we've, we've survived enough that, that here it is. Like, like there's, there's always that thing waiting for us in the future. That's going to bring it like even more. Like I had that feeling about it gets me too. Like I saw them, I was between tours in 2005. And since then, striking has played a lot of shows with them. Um, usually like a festival in Europe or New Jersey or something. Um, and we always get to like, you know, sit back and, 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 and really enjoy them from the, from the side of the stage, wherever we are. But I saw them in the crowd at this awesome venue in Portland when I lived there. And I got that feeling like those first Fugazi shows I saw, like that feeling, like this is like the sense of electricity in the air, like the whole thing. And it was cool. Cause I don't think we'd seen like that feeling was a little was being more captured. Um, you know, by, by maybe like hardcore and stuff. And then like finding, finding a punk band, like a jangly punk band with a lot of folk yeah. influences, so, Southern feel to everything, like carry that torch and like expand on that torch, you know, add to that. It was like, it was a beautiful thing. And it was also just relaxing, you know, like, like you said, like, it's, we're going to be all right. There's always going to be like bands in the future that are going to do it better with better context. Um, yeah, better better behavior. You know, like we're gonna see these politics. Like obviously, a lot of the punk politics that we grew up in, discovered through bands that felt like they were part of a, a niche little world, are now you know the discussion that we're having as a society. You know, like yeah, that's, that's you know, like crazy all of it is shit, dude. You know, I know. That's something, you were talking earlier, and and I wanted to say this: the craziest thing about this pandemic is. I don't think if it wasn't for the pandemic that those George Floyd protests would have kicked off the way they did. Like, I don't think BLM would have kicked off the way it did because everyone was, were, they were thinking about the value they have, yes. you know, cause everyone had to do this, this quantization of like, who do I know that's most vulnerable right now? Cause of coronavirus. Right. You know, they, they had, and they had like to get every like, day we're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like traumatizing. And so, you know, that, and then also, hey, guess what? Um, life is fucking uncertain, so you got some rage now. Like, maybe you're not gonna fuck it. Like, some, just at the normal day, you're fucking upset. A lot of boiling shit. Oh, and, and by the way, uh, you can wear masks right now. Like, <laughs> like, like, I remember when they passed that rule, I was thinking in my head, because one of my friends got fucking arrested back in, um, like, when they were doing the, kind of like the Occupy stuff here, for wearing a mask under the Virginia felony rule. And I remember when the fucking pandemic happened, you know, sitting there like in March or April, when the lockdown started and they're like, you can wear a mask. I was like, Oh shit. I wonder if, I wonder if they know what they just did. Uh, well, it's not like any big protests are going to be happening in these time. Soon. Like I remember thinking that in my fucking head and then like jump to June. Most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. Wake up at midnight to BLM going the wrong way down Cary Street, like loud as 
shit. I was just oh, like, awesome. okay, that yeah, that's worth it. That's worth that's worth me waking up at twelve thirty in the morning. <laughs> like it was the most beautiful thing going the wrong way down this street. That is I love like, it. The yeah, fucking man, epitome was, of southern fucking bullshit. <laughs> you know, it was just like amazing. Yeah, I mean, I was here and like, you know, doing supply lines for the protests in Oakland and Berkeley, and you know, it being engaged out here as you can imagine, but. I was wanting to remote view Richmond all the time. I was like calling for, so what's going on today? Oh shit. What's, you know, like just in, in looking at the photographs and, you know, like it was just, and it's, I know it's still happening there. Like it's still, you know, unfolding and like, I wonder what's going to happen with the monuments, like, you know, everything, like all of, all of that. It's so beautiful. Like finally the city is a living place, not just a mausoleum, you know, know the second that graffiti hit that horse, war. man, it, it, it turned that horse into like, it's our Berlin wall. You know what I mean? Like, like, yes, that, fuck yeah, that, that's mind, great. You know, cause it, cause that's what it is. It's like, I can't, like, I've, I've tried to explain to people cause you know, I'm a white dude and I've got white older relatives and, and just mm-hmm. run into people and, it, and you meet people that are sympathetic, but they don't get it. I'm like, just try to imagine that like you're told you're equal, but every day, <laughs> You have to see these monuments, yeah. and for some reason they ain't coming down. Like for some right, reason. and all the like, <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's like, and it's not again. It's the fucking lack. I mean, it's more than this too, but the lack of context. Like it was just how we grew up. We were just like, this is these things are here. Maybe we sew up like an old like an anti-fascist stencil every couple of years on it, real quick at night, or do like punk meetings on it. You know, like, and, and kind of test it, test the police, like, see, but it's still, I mean, it's just the, the I don't know, like, the, what happened, like, the summer is like no other time in Richmond. I assume the opposite version of it was when there was a massive resistance against desegregation, um, yeah. and that was, you know, white people protesting, you know, in, in Richmond. So this is almost like the karmic answer to that, um, that, you know, that, like, specific to our city, Um but yeah, I love it. Like I, you know, and I, like adding the graffiti and the human life, like and and the sense of like holding grief. Like now, the depredations of white privilege and white nationalism, and that lazy, particularly southern racial inertia, um, you know, is no longer going to be with you know without a spotlight. And there's going to be like memorials to black citizens who were killed by police like in the, on that place, like on those circles forever. And like, that's, I mean, that, that's what uh, justice looks like. That's what Richmond looks like underneath, like this whole time, like the Richmond we've been searching for, like in our little mm. punk rock, mostly Caucasian world, right. With like Southern ancestry and the whole thing. Right. And trying to hold all that in our hands and figure it out, you know, and be alongside our black brothers and sisters and family members, you know, and then seeing this happen to our city. It's just, I mean, you know, it's almost like a culmination of every song I would have ever wanted to write. <laughs> like, happened this I summer. know. I mean, like, like me and my friend, uh, Skinhead John, Josh Fr- uh, Frick, like, back in, like, the, um, God, like, late 90s, me and him were, like, actually, like, trying to start an ARA here for a minute. And um, I remember uh, someone was like, oh, you should go talk to Tim Barry because he's got, like, a bunch of literature on it or some shit. And so, like, we went and, like, got all the information from him or whatever. But, like, it's crazy to think that, like, Antifa now is, like, what that thing is, is, like, 
so I know. my aunt knows what the fuck that is. You know, like I couldn't right. like, like twenty years my ago aunt I kn- couldn't explain Aerie to her, but like now she's like seeing it on the news. Like and then you get this crazy blowback from like people that kind of are like our age or whatever, but they've just been kind of like induced by the media and they have, you know, maybe not been involved with things. And they were like, what the fuck's Antifa? I'm like, dude, it's the same shit we were doing back then. We're just, you know, ant- are you are you pro-Nazi or anti-Nazi? That's, ant- you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, right. It's so cool to see that, it's, like, it's, writ large. Yeah, I love it. And it's got, you know, and it's definitely got weird. Like, you know, all of a sudden, like, me and my bandmates and the other folks who have the Iron Front Circle, like, tattooed on them. It's like, it's absolutely like all of a sudden we have a controversial symbol that we may have to explain to people who are just been primed by the media of the past five years to think that, you know, we're the terrorists. So oh, yeah. I crazy. Oh, yeah. I me too. Because I, I right. remember yeah. I got it for my, uh, when Patrick passed, um, I'd seen you come back from tour with Inquisition and you had a shirt that had the three arrows on it. And I, I like remember looking into that and talking to people and they're like, oh, that's the anti-fascist symbol. So when we started doing like kind of like anti-racist stuff, like putting up posters and whatnot, we would use that. And um, when he passed, I was like, you know, what was the core of that dude? And he, like the last song he had written was a song called Compassion. And it was just like outlying this thing of like, are we going to choose to look past people like homeless people, people are being not treated equally. Um, I mean, it didn't have the nuances that we would have nowadays um, just because we're so much more um, sophisticated with our understanding of things. But, um, you know, and I realized like, dude, his whole mission was just, if you had to boil it down, it was, it was really compassion for others. And I couldn't think of a symbol that meant more of that than fucking fuck the people that try to kill off anything different than them. You know, and so like that's why we fucking went with it, and it's crazy because yeah, now I'm like, oh shit. yeah, <laughs> you know, no, it's awesome. That shirt, that I'm a terrorist because of it. You know, like what the fuck? It's so <laughs> fucked up. Yeah, no, I mean, but it's it's also just because like, I mean, this like real people's power threatens the shit out of you know the establishment, out of capitalism, out of you know, and the twisted ideas of tradition and populism into the same twisted ass frame that was happening in the thirties in Germany. Like some real historical analogies happening. They're oh, not yeah. hyperbolic. They're not over dramatic. It's like just look at the facts, people. Like we have to be prepared um and to defend our communities. You know, it's like it's it's always been that simple and it, it remains that simple. But having to like pry away our, our ants and other people we love, like family members who they think Antifa is this is like ISIS or something. Like they've really right. just, it's, like, no. like it's crazy. Like how can we even like be able to just describe the simplicity of it? Like, no, it's what our grandfathers and grandmothers did when they mobilized against Nazi terror and World War II. I find, I mean, I know that's a little simplistic I and mean, it's true, but like that's a good way to go if you want to start describing what it really means to people. And then, of course, you get to the idea, like, well, why would conservatives, why would the conservative media ecosystem pump that virus into people's heads? Why would Trump pick it up if they weren't trying to, like, completely destabilize any actual community organizing against white nationalist terror? Like, you know, like, what other, what do they think they're doing? Like, why would they be so threatened and frightened about Antifa and then use Antifa anytime they need a bogeyman to distract people from their own shit? It's, 
it's so it's intensely <laughs> obviously it's an anxious time right but the, that stuff seeing that stuff is like it's less complicated than the dead kennedy song you know what i mean yeah like it's less complicated than a lot of stuff that we were talking about in the 80s and 90s like it's 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 way more like woody guthrie this machine kills fascists like it's the guy right. that the toolbox of that era needs to come out for this i think it, 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 it's crazy because, like, I mean, I actually have a 92F lyric about it where it's like, you know, um, it's talking about having to deal with friends that I've known that are, have kind of gotten pulled into this thing. And I'm like, dude, you're falling prey to the same propaganda that they've been spinning for 90 years. That's like the lyric. You're like, yeah. falling prey to the same propaganda. And, it, and it's so sad when you, like, have read about, like, the history of worker struggles in this country and you've seen how, like, when shit gets divisive, oh, they'll just pull in the people that these people hate, you know? So, like, yep. if the fucking yeah. Italians are striking, they'll pull in the Irish folks. It, like, if, you know, if it's fucking white racist, they'll bring in African Americans to, like, anything they can do to, like, tension and, and play race is this dividing thing because you'll never get a bunch of people that hate each other on the picket line standing against you. And, you know, ultimately... It, it's kind of, I don't know, it's it's a mix, because for the folks that believe the shit on the right, it, it makes me sad that that you can use very known tactics and, and it still works. But the most beautiful thing to me in seeing like BLM and all this stuff come up this, this summer was the fact that um, as someone that has been involved in activism, they almost, like these kids almost by because i mean it was majority of younger folks that were really kind of pushing right. it it was almost their their not knowing of how activism worked that led them to ask for such big things and i feel like if if if, right. act, if like, yes. seasoned activists had been involved, it would have been way more toned down because we're just used to getting the shit kicked out of us for fucking acting for anything. With right. Like, like we oh, have, we have that. like more, right. Like everywhere all the way up to, and everywhere from like, you know, the eighties all the way up to, and including Occupy, like uh, we had as many tactics for just legal defense, getting us, getting ourselves out of jail, like figuring out what the next Monday was going to be like after the protest. Then we had about what we wanted if we if we if we held it instead and like and i think you know some of that stuff was just we were just trying to like figure out new ways to be equitable inside the movements instead of it just yeah. being like demagoguery patriarchy you know like cool we're just like rewriting the same prejudices of the outside world inside these little activist circles like we worked on a lot of that in the 90s you know and pushed and pulled and tried to you know look inward and all that like but also some of the shit i think you bring up the idea that is a failure of imagination. Ultimately, like we maybe had other things to work on, like I just mentioned, but also like the kids not know and just knowing that like we are in, in pain and now we're on the street and that's the whole reality. Then everything that's like, you haven't limited yourself, you know, in the ways that we didn't know we were limiting ourselves necessarily, but, but there you have it. Like it's, I, it's almost a metaphor with the same thing happening with like new bands, like getting d drilling down even deeper into the genres into the kinds of sounds and feelings that we were all trying to get to right but we had to draw like the bigger map and now they can do like the smaller um gradual work like something about that maybe in reverse is what's happened with activism like there's a sense of like 
now like we can dream big and we can get it and we can take care of each other and we can pick and choose from the tactics because the world is ours, you know? And I know that's some stuff that we felt, you know, but we didn't have those moments that proved it. And this summer was one of those moments now that proved it forever for generations. The most beautiful thing I ever saw was during that thing. Um, when BLM was coming on Carrie, there was this girl and she was just sitting out of the sunroof of one of those cars. And she just had this, she looked so peaceful. She was kind of like swaying almost, right? Awesome. But she was just looking ahead. And I'm just like, I just woke up. I'm just looking out my window. And I can, and I just sat there for a second. I was like, dude, that girl's 17, 18, maybe 19 years old. She probably, maybe she's going to college here. Um, She's sitting on the rooftop of a car in front of her is nothing but just her people, like people, her age, like walking, like her cohort. Yeah. Against this horrible. And it's this beautiful summer night. And like, all she sees is the power of people right in front. I was like, that girl has to be looking at the most beautiful thing that's come down this street in a long ass time. And like, I love that. that, It it was just such a cool thing. I I was, I was more happy with myself that I was actually able to like snap (laughs) myself to actually appreciate it for a second. Because I mean, and that's, you know, again, with the pandemic, if there's something that really comes out of this, it's that it broke the, the cycle that we were all in of just, you know, even if we're doing well, like it, you know, we're, you have to do the things we do every day. And that I think just ultimately kind of led people to kind of like, just do this almost like Buddhist kind of like questioning of like, you know, why am I doing like, what is this? And it, it works out for some people. It doesn't work out if you're in a, you know, it's, it's tough if you're in a life that doesn't make a lot of sense to you, you know? So I also have to have compassion for that too, is like, there's a lot of people that they started pulling the string on this sweater and it just came the fuck off, you know? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's a huge thing. And that's another reason why the U S is polarized so hard, why people are digging down into like conspiracies and delusions and things to make them feel comforted, you know, like that, that, that their whole world didn't just fall apart or show itself to be a sham, you know? And then like, if you were begging for that to happen because you knew part of you was ready for it, part of you yeah. needed it, then you, you, you'd be on the other side. You'd be like, this is great. Like we finally, we finally figured out where we are resting in history, you know, and like what we can right. do about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, it's, it, it's a pleasure to go over this with you. It's cool to know that you were yeah. like looking at your window in Carytown. Like that's exactly where, like, if I could like send myself out as a drone, <laughs> I would have wanted to be like floating around. Um, I, there was, so I was in Richmond for, for the year of 2011, like taking care of my dad when he had cancer and just kind of like going to the flying brick and volunteering library, doing food, not bombs, just the, the wing nut collective. And you just, that, that era. That's, uh, I ran Mark into you. From, at uh, Food Not Bombs that around that time because yeah I was I was doing the same thing actually. <laughs> That's right, weird. I remember right. running into you in Monroe Park uh, one day yeah. around that time. And we did like some striking work stuff where it was kind of like just taking it easy a little bit and just you know we did an acoustic benefit for 
um, the, the Richmond ABC, Anarchist Black Cross, and like she did some like local stuff, and it felt really good. And it was, you know, there was a, a May Day march, as there is in Richmond. And if you were, at that, I don't know if you were at that or not, but there was maybe a good 150 folks starting up at uh, Monroe Park, looping yeah. a little loop around the fan, ending back up at Monroe Park, you know, shutting down Broad Street for a good half hour facing cop cars as they slow down because you're going the wrong way down Broadway, like all of those feelings, like all of that reality, like, you know, the, this is where the people are, you know, this isn't the industry. This isn't commerce. This, this is like, we were like seizing this moment, like, and this is for all of us. And we, we went back through a side street to get to Monroe park. And there was a young woman, maybe like a teenager in, in her window, like on the first floor, but it was like, a, you know, maybe like eight, 10 feet up first floor. Um, and she was like, what are you guys doing? And different people in the march would talk to her as we pass by. And by the time you get to like halfway through the march passing by, she's like, I'm going to come down. I'm going to do like, and she just got into it. And like, so people helped her down. Like she kind of like gently stage dove into the march. And then, oh you know, God. it picked up steam. We went back to Monroe Park and, you know, talked about workers' rights, talked about May Day, talked about a better vision for the world. But that was one of those moments like, yeah, come on down, come join us. We got you. Like, come out of your window. I hope your parents are cool with this. <laughs> like, you know. Right. It was, oh my God. yeah. So that, was, that reminded me of the, you know, that was maybe a, a precursor to what you saw, you know, summer. It, you know, and it's weird because there, there, there have been, I mean, well, I mean, there's always been precursor. I mean, I was going to say there, you know, because I mean, there was something special with the Occupy thing, but there was also because I was I was involved, we did some stuff with with it here, and then we also um, Mo and them, uh, the Wingnut had kind of yeah. like occupied before Occupy, <laughs> and it was funny because I remember at the time, of course was, they did. They actually hit me up because I didn't really have anything going on, and like I think me and Mo had just. We, I think we had just broken up. We were like dating for a minute and, and they were like, uh, yo, you should go, uh, occupy the park. It was like me and some other dude. And they're like, I was like, no, I'm not fucking doing that. Sounds horrible. Like I'm not going to go sleep in the park. And then they're like, well, fuck it. We'll do it. And, um, and then they actually like did it for like a few and it was crazy. Um, like they were down yeah, I there remember. for like, 30 days or, or maybe 16 days. I can't remember. It was, but it, like, the, you know, the, they didn't know what to fucking do with them. Like the police were like, uh, cause social media, it was like one of those things of like, well, social media is kind of more accessible now. So if like you roll in and start doing some crazy shit, people can videotape you like super easy. Like you don't have to have like the super technical anarchists. Like everyone can do that now. And, um, I remember they waited till like, 2 a.m. or some shit one night and just fucking lit them up with lights from like the fire trucks and just bulldoze like it was like you, like you got 10 minutes to get out of here and it was crazy there was something in the air around that time because then you know we thought that was it and then all of a sudden like the new york um occupy popped off and then you know shit started coming around from that um and man it, it that was kind of like a like when that ended it was kind of like a really sad moment. I remember because it, it, it was like a lot, a lot of lost potential, you know, that you could feel like, oh shit, did we gain anything? I don't know. But then, you know, I think this the, is like, with, you know, I had that feeling too, and I know everyone. We did a little bit of touring around that time that would have folks from 
that occupy even like tiny ones in Huntington, West Virginia. You know, like everybody mm-hmm. yeah. had one, which kind of looked like the way that BLM happened in every, like even cities that didn't have a civil rights movement history, like a, they didn't have a march come through them back then, now they do now. Like almost like to complete that bedrock history, you know, in our country of like people yeah. marching for justice. And I, I think that, you know, I remember that feeling that like Occupy just felt like, what was the lesson learned? How did we, like, where was the, you know, like, is it, are we still doing this? Like, is the unity gone? You know, and I think though that that was another part of like the foundation for what happened this summer too. Like, because everything was, like everything was just scooped up on its way through history, um, adding momentum, adding voices, adding tactics, you know, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't work, like being flexible, like all that stuff, like, I thought I thought we saw some of those roots like in in BLM too. Like I think it's cool because it felt like a lot of the tactics too were like you know the stuff that was happening in in maybe a really really rarefied um, radical ghetto of politics over you know the '90s like you know and like like particular kinds of like anarchism and and, you know like anti civilization like all these different tactics that really spoke to a couple people, <laughs> like not, not right. a lot of folks, but like now it's like none of that was lost and all, you know, and it's like, you've got to be added to the menu for this, for this movement. Um, so yeah, I, I love seeing that and I love witnessing it and like definitely it makes you hopeful for the future. Like despite obviously like how tense and fucked up and like crazy things are like, there's, there's still this sense of like, joy in it and and like we talked about like an hour ago like you either look at what you're against and you kind of just like almost can lose your momentum in trying to describe all the pain and you know the machinery that you're up against and how awful it is and don't forget how bad that shit is because it's super bad you know like that's a, a songwriting tendency you know i think what you have to do to lift out of that is you need to describe that. You need to visit that feeling because without it, it's just going to stay in you, but you need to be able to build it up. So there's catharsis. Like, you know, I, I see this, it's horrible. It's generations deep. Like, how can we stand up? Like, how can we survive this? You know? And then you just look and you're like together. That's the way we do it. That's the only answer. And then that's, that's the moment when you're writing a song or making a piece of art about this feeling where it turns from the, here's what I'm against to here's here's what I'm for and here's how we get to a joyful future. And that concludes my conversation with Thomas Burnett. I would like to thank him for having such an awesome conversation with me. You can find this and more episodes at variousthingspodcast.com as well as on Apple Podcasts and Spotify under the show name Various Things. Thanks for listening.